Where can you show up at the door and know that everything's going to be okay? Who can look you in the eye with compassion and still expect you to be your best you? Who would be your voice when you have no voice? Who protects your name and guards your heart? Say it to me as a friend. Okay, I confess, I confess, I didn't mean to, I didn't, I didn't think I wanted to. I confess here and now before you. I watched the voice. I didn't want to. I, I don't know what came over me. Maybe I missed American Idol. I don't know. I watched the voice, this, this wannabe better than American, American Idol show. And what was most interesting to me, however, about the show was something that really wasn't in the show itself, wasn't about the singing. Every once in a while they would, they would cut, they would go, and we're going to go to the social media room, the social media room, let's go there. And you would go there and people would be talking and they wouldn't be saying a whole lot of anything and they'd be bringing up tweets and Twitters and stuff and, and twangs and, and just things that would come up. And people would be saying like, oh, that was awesome. You are so awesome. This is fantastic. I love you. I love this person. I love that person. And, and I have to be honest, I, I, I must confess, I don't totally understand social media. I, I don't understand uh, why we have a lot of it. There's just an abundance of it. I, I, I sort of kind of understand it, but there's something deep down inside of me. I must confess, I don't understand it. Let me illustrate. The other day, Somebody wanted to see me, so they posted it on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. So somebody on Facebook had to call the office, and then somebody in the office had to talk to me, and then I had to call the Facebook person, and then I got their voicemail. (laughs) You see, I, I grew up in a whole different time and place. When I grew up, about six o'clock at night in the summertime, I'd be playing baseball down on a field at the end of the street. It was a long street. My mother would come out on the front steps about six o'clock and she would just yell, Michael. And I knew it was time to come home and eat dinner. That was voicemail in 1959. (laughs) And it worked and it made sense and it was succinct and it calls you to do something. And now it's just everything is, is social media and connectivity and all these things. The other day, somebody asks me through email to join K Pasa. This is a person I haven't seen in five years. And I get, I get lots of requests like this. So I go, okay, I'll join K Pasa. I don't know really what it is. K Pasa, good. Next thing you know, some chick named Fiona wants to date me. <laughs> So I think it's safer for me to stay out of social media zones, social media rooms, social media in general. The truth is, we're real good at social media in 2011, but we need help with life. We're real good at social media, but we need help with life. The real meaning of life is is not a journey question or an arrival question. It's a relationship question. 
So who are you taking with you on the ride we call life? Often we read the Bible and, and we read it maybe because we think it's all serious and it's all very you know, erudite and we're, it's very theological. And, and, and every once in a while you run across something, if you just let it speak to you, that's really very humorous. And to set up this story today about David and Jonathan, I want to read you a passage in 1 Samuel 19 that I thought kind of funny. While David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. In other words, he was not getting a gratuity for being a musician. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, in today's world, we might call her Michelle, but Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your, for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the, at the head, which is kind of a little bit like what Ferris Bueller did, if you think about it. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, he is ill. And then there's a space there. You know why there's a space there, a line? Because they left. This is, this is the funny part. It's like, we're here to kill your husband. He's sick. Okay, sorry. <laughs> what was that all about? So they go back and they, they say, he's sick. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. In other words, I sent you to do your job. You can't even do your job. And you think you have problems with employees. Hey, it's like, what, what, was, what were they thinking about? So they go back, but when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goat's hair. When you read the Bible, look for the funny stuff too. Sometimes it's absolutely fantastic. People have always been people. Here's the story. First Samuel chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. So why would he, why would he hide this from me? It's not so. Jonathan is like, no, I can't believe this. this. This couldn't be happening. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. If I move the wrong way at the wrong time, it's over for me, Jonathan. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him. 
because he loved him as he loved himself. And that's the first hint of what this story is, is going to reveal to us about friendship, about real friendship, about who guards your heart because he loved him. Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon festival. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone Azel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send the boy and say, go find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here, then come because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe, there is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. They had this bond, they had this, this commitment to each other, to love and to care for each other always. So David hid in the field. And when the new moon festival came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul. The Bible's always gonna give you detail upon detail so you know exactly what's going on. But David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son, Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission. He's telling a story. David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. And you see the character of Saul. Saul is abusive. He uses anger as a, as a weapon. He denigrates his son's mother. He uses abusive language. He is just an angry, angry man. And we're gonna read a proverb in just a few moments about what you shouldn't do with an angry man. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. It's Saul's number one choice of defense mechanisms. Let me get a bead on you, young man. Let me show you how serious I am. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David because in that moment he could have just as easily killed his own son. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the month, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David, had a small boy with him. And he said to the boy, he's, he's doing the plan now, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing of all this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times. This was, this was symbolic of the great honor that David had 
for his friend. This is symbolic of, of a deep and abiding relationship, a bond that these two had. With his face to the ground, he bowed down with his face to the ground three times. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most because he knew his relationship with Jonathan would be broken and it would never be the same. You see, in the Western world, we have to to stop and take a look at this because there's a part of this we really don't understand easily. Then they kissed each other. If you come from a European family tradition, which which I did, you understand that, that men kissing each other out of respect and out of familial connection is just a very normal part of, of life in the family. It's a very normal part of the way that I grew up. I would kiss my father. I would kiss my, my uncles. I would kiss grandparents. I would kiss men I didn't even know just because they were Italian, which is why I almost got arrested in Rome. I'm kissing everybody in sight. But it's, it's just very normal to do that as a greeting of, of love and grace and affection. You see it often written in, in Scripture, too. And here you have this, this deep friendship between these two men. And there was no shame in this. There was just a bond and a, an understanding of our hearts are knit together We guard each other's hearts, and now it's all going to be different. It's all broken. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. In 2 Samuel, the first chapter, Jonathan dies in a battle. And so David hears about that. And this is what he writes. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful. More wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. And again, in the Western world, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What does that mean about the kind of love that they had? This is the love that men have for each other when they they play on a team together for a long time, and the team comes together, and they, they work as one, and they love playing the game together, and they love each other. And it's been proven by studies. They've done studies on high performing teams. And after looking at the teams and doing interviews and and watching team behavior, they've said there's only one thing. At first, a group of people have a decline in performance when they're trying to come together as a team because they're they're trying to figure things out. Can we have a moment of silent prayer for LeBron James? Okay, thanks. Uh, I didn't really pray. Okay. (laughs) Figure that out. Figure that out. But uh, at first... The play declines because they're trying to figure each other out. But then as they get to know each other and they start to to play together, their performance improves and improves. It goes up. You can graph it. It just goes up, up, up. Then there comes a point where it plateaus unless one thing is present on the team. And studies have shown this. There's one thing that takes a high-performing team to the heights of performance. 
And the studies say, it's love. It's love. It's when men on a team love each other so much that they'll give anything to make the team work better. It's when, same thing, when women are on a team, when the, the USA soccer team now in competition, when those women just are knit together in love, it's what makes all the difference. As far back as Aristotle, there have been expansive conversations about friendship. Aristotle just wrote amazing stuff about friendship. Cicero wrote one of the most famous essays on friendship ever written. Why do they work or not work? What does a real friendship look like? Am I being a true friend? Friendship today is proffered at many levels of social media, but it only really works when you know who guards your hearts. The Bible brings a deeper understanding to friendship than just about anywhere where you read about friendship. Proverbs 22:11. He who loves a pure heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king for his friend. And that's really the essence of that movie, The King's Speech. One man caring so much about the other that even when the king walks away from him, the would-be king, when he walks away and leaves him in the dust and scores his life with wrath, he's there as he walks into that tiny room, as he stands behind that microphone, to address a nation. He stands there knowing that with his presence there, he will be able to accomplish something he never thought he could do. He has guarded the heart of his friend. He who loves a pure heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king for his friend. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-four: Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered. There it is. You couldn't be Saul's friend. You shouldn't even associate with someone like that because you can't be friends. The demands of friendship require so much more. And so if somebody's always blowing their stack and somebody's always agitated, there's, there's, no, there's no opening there for friendship. How do you open your heart in that kind of a setting? You can't. Scripture says, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Proverbs 27, 6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. You know, this is about flattery on the one side when somebody's trying to, to make you better, than, make you out to be better than you know you are. When somebody's trying to just use a lot of words to ingratiate themselves to you because they want something from you. It says, beware of that. And remember that when, when a friend who guards your heart, who loves you just for the sake of loving you, when they have to wound you, those wounds can be trusted. Those wounds, those woundings are important parts of your life. They are building the future of your life because your future is now being built on truth and love and grace. Proverbs 27.9, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart and the pleasantness 
of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. That's what Paul and Troy were talking about here just a few moments ago. Because of Paul's earnest counsel to Troy, Troy's life direction changed. It went 180 degrees in another direction the way God really wanted him to go. The pleasantness of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. Ecclesiastes 4.10 says, if one falls down, his friend can help him up. If one falls down, his friend is there to help him up. There's a great film out right now. It's PG-13. It's, it's Super 8 by J.J. Abrams and Steven Spielberg. And it's one of those, those great stories that I love about a group of kids. You know, I, I grew up with, with our gang and, and kids always doing stuff together and helping each other. And each, everybody had a role. And everybody had a part. This is one of those stories where every kid has a role and every kid has a part. And every kid is there to do his part. And every kid is there to, to fill in the gap that the other kid has created. And everybody's there for one good final outcome. And I love stories like that, because when you're down, you need somebody to be there to pick you up. What if there's no one there, Scripture says, to pick you up? The truth is, we're real good at social media, but we need help with life. Where can you show up at the door and know everything is going to be okay? Who can look you in the eye with compassion and still expect you to be your best you? Who would be your voice when you have no voice? Who protects your name and guards your heart? In Leonard Sweet's book, Eleven, he writes with crystal clarity about a Jonathan and what a Jonathan is. A Jonathan believes in you when no one else does. Anton Chekhov said if he'd listened to his critics, he would have died drunk in a gutter. And what a great loss for the world if there was not a Chekhov. See, there was a Jonathan somewhere in his life. A Jonathan believes in you when no one else does. A Jonathan is loyal even when you make it hard to be loyal. Even when you're being a pain, a Jonathan is loyal to you. A Jonathan is the first to call in good times or bad. A Jonathan gives and gives and wants no payment, requires nothing in return, doesn't expect anything. A Jonathan holds on to you for dear life when you're about to fall into a bottomless pit that you may even have dug yourself. A Jonathan keeps you in check when you want what you can't have. A Jonathan grants you grace when you take him or her for granted, even when you're not paying attention or caring about the fact that there's this Jonathan in your life, they're still there. They still love, they still guard your hearts. But most of all, a Jonathan sacrifices himself or herself for you. He or she is willing to lead a life of decreasing significance for your benefit. Remember what John the Baptist said? He must increase, I must decrease. He had the heart of a Jonathan. He knew he was to guard the heart of Jesus. And then look at Jesus. 
Jesus allowed himself to become nothing. He emptied himself. And he went to a cross so that you could have everything in heaven and eternal life. He gave himself for you. He was the one who guarded your heart before you were even born. It's so important to understand this concept. Sweet asked these questions. What makes having a Jonathan in your life so rare? What makes it so hard for you to be a Jonathan to others? Why is it so hard to maintain a friendship as an adult? Why is it so hard to really, to really live? Sweet lines out three things. First, there's a superficial what's in it for me culture that surrounds us. What's in it for me? How do I get what I want before you get what you want? And so we were going to see the Vatican and when we, when we got to St. Peter's Square, the line was, was literally, looked like to me, um, this is a pretty close estimate, it was a mile long. It, was, it just was snaking around the square and it was way out, almost out of sight of the front door of going into the Vatican. I don't like to stand in line at 7-Eleven. If there's three people, I'm like, ah, I'm out of here. You know, and there's thousands of people. And, and I, I said to Gail, I, I kind of know what the inside of a cathedral looks like. She goes, no, I think this will be okay. Let's just wait, let's just do this. And she was so right. And so we got on the very end of the line and we waited and we waited and it really didn't take that long. But as we got to the front door of the Vatican, I noticed people who live in a superficial culture, they were cutting in line because it was, I don't, I'm not gonna wait in this line. I'm more important than you. I'm gonna cut in front of you and I'm gonna get in to see God. I'm gonna cut in line to see God. And they don't realize that if they got in there and if God was sitting there, God would go, I saw you cut in line. What was that all about? What? But that's how crazy people can be. Cut in line to get in to a place that lifts up the magnificence of God. I deserve this. It's me. God, it's me. Superficial, what's in it for me? Culture makes it really hard to be a Jonathan to anyone. The deeper relational journey. You have to understand that, that a relationship is, he uses the, the phrase like going down in an elevator to deeper places. And so the first floor is, is a facade level. It's the level of social custom. It's, it's what we need to keep the, the glue of society together. It's the banter that we use with each other about baseball and about life and about the weather and about what's happening today. And are you going to get a hot dog? Are you going to get a burger? Where are you going to see fireworks? It's all those things that are necessary, but it's just the very first floor of relationship. Then there's the acquaintance level. At the acquaintance level, I will tell you my opinions. Let me tell you what I think. Let me tell you about that person. Let me tell you if I was you know, running things, if I was in charge, the changes that I would make. And so that's, that's another level, but there's two more levels. The friendship level, it's a good level. 
It's when you share feelings. I had a really hard week and, and I'm not feeling too good right now. Then you have a basis for a deeper discussion. It's when you have empathy for that person. You say, let's, let's grab a cup of coffee together. I want to hear what happened this week. And so that's a great f- friendship level, but it's not a Jonathan level yet. Then there's the intimacy level, the deepest level, where you are vulnerable, where you allow yourself the opportunity, the possibility of maybe being hurt. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. And it's where you share the heart stuff of your life. There's stuff in your heart that you never tell anybody. There's stuff in your heart that is sealed away and nobody nobody gets to that. But you have to let somebody get to that. You have to let somebody go there with you. And when you're there at that heart level, when you're there at that level of vulnerability, you're in a Jonathan kind of a relationship. You're either being a Jonathan or you're receiving the guarding of your heart by a Jonathan. And then there's time. We live in a society where time is at a premium. Paying the price of the the sacrificial amount of time that it takes to be a Jonathan often keeps us from experiencing, experiencing the depth of this kind of relationship. All relationships take more time than you ever thought they would. All of them. And we live in a world of tweets and emails and likes and stuff. And it's just real easy to miss the longitudinal nature of time and and the abundance of time that's necessary if you want to answer what the Bible calls really the most important relationship of all. Sigmund Freud asked the famous question a long time ago, what does a woman want? And contemporary psychologist and Harvard professor Daniel Goleman famously answered, she wants someone to care what she wants. And that takes time, more time than you ever thought. A man and his wife, both 65, were having dinner and thinking about their future when a fairy godmother showed up and she was going to give the proverbial one wish to each one of them. And she turned to the, to the wife. She said, what would you like? And the wife was just so excited. She said, I've always wanted to go on a cruise around the world with my husband. And the fairy godmother waved her wand and put two tickets for an around the world cruise were in the hands of this woman. And she was excited and she was elated. And she turned to the husband and she said, and sir, what would you like? And he just wanted to, to kind of joke as men sometimes do. He said, well, if I'm going on a cruise around the world, I'd like to go with a woman who's like 30 years younger than me. And the fairy godmother got a little angry and she waved her wand before she could get control of herself. And poof, the man turned 95 years old. <laughs> the lesson... Don't be joking with a serious fairy godmother. (laughs) It's not in the Bible, but you need to know that. You know, all relationships take time. All relationships take more time than you ever think. And you've got to get to a place where you share your heart with somebody. 
all the experts say that if you can count on one hand the number of Jonathans you have in your life at the end of your life, you've had a great life. Just one, just one puts you ahead of most people. Jonathans, they go with you to level four. Jonathans do whatever it takes to get there. And it takes the sacrifice of time. Here's your finish line challenge. Write a letter to your Jonathan this week and recognize the gift that they are to you, the gift that God gave to you through that person, through that man, through that woman. Might be a, an acquaintance, a friend, somebody in your family. Write a letter and express deep appreciation and understanding of the gift that they have been to your life. Or decide who you can be a Jonathan to for the next five, 10, or 20 plus years. Yes, it takes that long to be a Jonathan. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're going, I don't have that. I've never had that. Ask God to give you a Jonathan. A Jonathan is a lot like Jesus. He or she guards your heart and they would be willing to lay their lives down to take care of you. Where can you show up at the door and know everything is going to be okay? Who can look you in the eye with compassion and still expect you to be your best you? Who would be your voice when you have no voice? Who protects your name and guards your heart? That's your Jonathan. And it might just be you. Dear Heavenly Father, allow us to, to learn more and more of the meaning of relationship, the meaning of deep, abiding, loving, grace-giving relationship. Allow us to be knit together by the love that you poured out to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Allow us to appreciate those Jonathans in our lives and to be thankful for them. Allow us the great opportunity to be a Jonathan in someone's life and to be thankful that you have called us to that purpose. Father, guide and bless these men and women today, God, and bless these young men and these young women that they might live with a passion in their hearts to know you, that you might bring their faith and their life together through your son, Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. There's a man who lives to be faithful and true, who stands in love's purest light. Now take his hand as you walk through the joy and the pain. The one who is loved will be loved to you. And I'll be with you when all others turn away. I'll be with you. 
the heart seems to say, sorrow breaks me, and I can't see the light of day, and I'll be the one you gets harder the farther we go as our hopes and dreams tend to fade but in the light of hope from a faraway land the voice who is loved softly calls your name I'll be with you when all others turn Others turn away. 